<laughs> Open to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue the theme of the uh, study in Ephesians, uh, the body life, the body life. Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6 and this morning's uh, message is the sevenfold unity. Last Sunday when we left off learning that this unity of the Spirit can only be produced by the Spirit. And each one of you, all of us, are responsible to keep that unity. And to keep this unity through Christ-like love. Unity is something that God produces. We keep it. And that's why Paul goes through so much work to make sure that nobody misunderstands the true character of the unity of the Spirit when he writes these words beginning in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. This is the true unity of the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul clearly explains in these verses a seven-part unity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Now, in verses 5 and 6 here, you can see that this seven-part unity is formed around, notice, the unity in the Spirit, the unity in the Lord, and the unity in the Father. You see, it gathers around the Trinity. There's nothing closer or more united than the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God answered Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. You see, the church isn't to be a bunch of individuals, lone rangers doing their own thing, who just happen to agree on some ideas. The church is bound together like an organism in a bodily unit, thus one body. For example, the basic nature of a body is made up of thousands of cells that, are, that, all, that, that all share one body and one life. You don't produce a body by putting a bunch of pieces or bits of a body together. A body is formed by numerous cells multiplying and growing together until a mature body develops. But every one of those cells shares the life of that one original cell and the life of every other cell in the body. That's the secret of the body. All parts of the body share life together. It's the sharing of life that makes a body different from an organization. An organization gets its power from the association from the people in the organization, the individuals. But a body gets its power from sharing the same life. So now, we're going to look at the next part in the Apostle Paul's description of the unity of the church, which is one spirit. Last week when we were together, we looked at verses 1, 2, and 3, where he was uh, uh, admonishing 
the church to spare no effort to keep this unity, to do whatever it takes to keep this unity. So now Paul, like I said, he's going to <clears throat> describe the unity of the church, and, and that is uh, one spirit, the invisible eternal person who is the power of the church, the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is not a, a, a luxury. He's not an option. He's a necessity. He's like the lung, the, the air in the lungs, our lungs that we breathe. We can't be without the air, just like the church cannot be without the Holy Spirit. He's the power of the church, the eternal, invisible power of the church. The strength of the church never comes from how many people go to that church. Because the power is not in the people. You know, a church with 10, a church with 10,000, the power is from the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that. The strength of the church never comes from from how many people go to it. The power to influence society, it doesn't come from getting enough Christians together to change legislature. God's plan won't be achieved by worldly ways and worldly power. At a meeting of the National Association of Evangelicals in the 1980s, after Ronald Reagan had spoken, Chuck Colson stepped up to the podium and he reminded everybody that the kingdom of God doesn't arrive on Air Force One, but it will arrive with Jesus. And with Zechariah, when he was confronting a mountain, he asked the Lord, Lord, where can we get the power to remove this mountain? And the Lord said to Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6. Later on, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul will say, Finally, my brethren, be strong, notice, in the Lord and in the power of his might. In Ephesians 6.10. You see, it's Impossible jobs take supernatural power. And because the job of the church isn't to be accomplished by man's power, we have to depend totally upon and the the only sufficient power that's available to us. The Holy Spirit is the only true power of the church. And that's why Jesus told the disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for the power from on high to fall upon you in Acts 1.8 so that you can go out and you can do. It says, I've called you to be witnesses, but you can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only true power to the church. There's only one spirit and he's the same everywhere, no matter where in the world that church might be. The Holy Spirit never changes. And that's why truth never changes. And today people are trying to tell you all different kinds of truths. The truth is relative. Well, what you believe, I don't. What I believe, you don't. It's relative. It's too heavy. No, it's not. They are absolutes and a truth is an absolute. Truth is truth. It will always be truth. The Holy Spirit never changes. The passing of time does not affect the truth. And this is also why the church is not dependent on one or two people or 10 or or 1,000 or 20,000 people or the wisdom of its members. The church is to trust and 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 depend upon only one thing, and that is the Holy Spirit. So there's one body, one spirit. And then Paul goes on and connects the spirit of the one hope that we have, and that's in Christ. Notice he says in verse 4, he says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. These three parts of unity are all 
tied together. One body, one spirit, one hope. Now, what is the hope that, we're all, that we all have? It's the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Paul said to Titus in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you looking for that blessed hope? That's the question that's really important we need to ask. Are you looking for Christ's return? Do you believe He's coming back? Well, the way things are going in this world, if you don't, you aren't seeing things that's going on in this world. There's signs of Christ coming back. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, he says, the day of the Lord will come, not might, will come, and he's going to come like a thief in the night, and that means when you least expect it, when you least expect it, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the, both the, earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, notice, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved by fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Peter said, knowing that Jesus is going to come and that this world is going to be basically burned up, it's, got, it's no longer going to exist one day. He says, knowing that, knowing that Jesus is coming and what's going to happen, he says, what kind of people should you be? How should you be living? If you're watching for his blessed hope, his blessed coming, and knowing he could come at any minute, how should you be living? What kind of life should you be living? The Holy Spirit forms the body so that the body can achieve its last goal, its redemption, and the sharing of Christ's glory when he turns, Paul, uh, returns. Paul said in 1 Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, this is the hope that Christians all over the world have, wherever they are, that one day we are all going to be like Jesus. And now Paul gives us three more parts of, the, of unity connected with the second person of the Trinity. He said, one Lord, one Lord. Scripture shows us that he can't become Savior until he becomes Lord. Now, this is important to, to, to understand. Jesus cannot become your Savior until he becomes your Lord. You see, a lot of people want Jesus to be their Savior. They want their sins forgiven. They want Jesus to get them into heaven on that day. But they don't want Jesus to be their Lord. They want Jesus to save them from the torment and darkness of hell. But they don't want his holiness. That stops them from living in their sins that will send them to hell. Jesus said in Luke six forty six to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Great question. Why do you call him Lord? Oh, he's my Lord. But then you're not obedient to your Lord. Or you pick and choose the things that you want to be obedient to. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. See, it's not what you say, it's what you do. 
A lot of people call Jesus Lord. But they don't do what he says. It's a contradiction. It's those who do what he says that make him their father. The word Lord means absolute authority. But is he the absolute authority in your life this morning? To call Jesus Lord is to admit that he's the supreme being in the whole universe. It's to admit that there is no other Lord. And there isn't. Again, despite what we hear in the world. Oh, there's many gods and many roads that lead to heaven. No, they're not. One Lord. Only one way to get to heaven. Jesus Christ. He's the absolute authority. He's the absolute supreme person of the whole universe. So again, it's to admit that there is no other Lord. Acts 4.12 says that, that there's no other name under heaven given by among, among men by which we must be saved. You see, that's why the early Christians couldn't call Caesar Lord. Or we can't say Buddha, Krishna, Confucius, the Pope, Mary, or any other person is Lord. It's Jesus only. And then connected to this uh, is the next part, one faith. One faith. And Paul... Paul means more than just faith in general. We hear a lot of people say when somebody gets in a bind, oh, just have faith. Just have faith. In what, though? Just have faith. That's what it's, you know, they use this as a magic word. Paul isn't talking about the ability to believe, whether or not you can believe or you can't believe, because everybody can believe. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I, I can't believe, which isn't true. Because, you see, people are believing all the time, every day. Why do you go to work every day? Well, I believe I have a job. Why do you turn on the lights to get light? Because I believe I turn it on, the light darkness is going to disappear. We believe every day in so many ways. But when it says to believe in Jesus, oh, I can't believe. Wrong. You won't believe. You don't want to believe. Everything we do comes from believing. An atheist, just like a Christian, acts on belief. They both believe something. And then they act according to that belief. So Paul isn't talking about just conversion when somebody gets saved, which is called, which is called saving faith. Paul isn't talking about these kinds of faith. He's talking about the body of truth that's been revealed through the word of God. There's only one faith. The faith that we are to contend for, just like Jude says in Jude 1.3. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This one faith is associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the truth about him. Now, there might be differences of opinions about a lot of things. But there's total agreement among, the, among true Christians that there's only one body of truth about Jesus Christ. There's only one set of facts, one faith, and that body of truth is the Scriptures. There isn't a faith for the Jews. There's not another faith for Gentiles, another faith for others. And No, there's one faith. 
Everybody comes to Christ one way. One way. There's only one faith, and it's, all, it's for all people everywhere. God has spoken through the prophets and the apostles. But it all forms one big picture explaining itself so there isn't a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. And we, and we can't say like people often do, even Christians, well, I have my God and you have yours. Uh-uh. And a lot of times I've seen people witness say, well, you know, this is, you know, this is the way I believe my God and you believe in your God in a different way. Same God. <laughs> your belief is wrong. Same God. So, again, uh, there's only one Christ, and that's the Christ of history. There's only one faith. Jeremiah 32, 27, God said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. He's the God of all flesh, every living, breathing soul. The next party, uh, part of the unity picture in verse 5, it says, is one baptism. There's one baptism. Now, there are many, many opinions about baptism. But even with all the differences over the symbol of baptism, there's still only one baptism. The baptism of the Spirit. The true baptism that water symbolizes. The true baptism that water symbolizes. It's the way that every true believer in Christ is made part of his living body, the church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So you see, the baptism here is connected to Jesus Christ, the Lord. Because it's baptism into his body. Paul said in Romans 6, 3, he says it like this. Do you know, or I'm sorry, do you not know that as many of his, uh, as, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You see, the main idea is that each believer is made to be one with Jesus Christ, united with him in his death and his resurrection. And that's the symbol of water baptism. You know, when you, go in to get, when you go to get baptized, when you go down into the water, you're going down as, as dying to the old man, you're going down into the water, a picture of the grave. You come out of that grave as a picture of the new life in Christ, Christ's resurrection, and now you're walking in the newness of life. That's what baptism represents. It's an outward display of an inward change. It doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. But we get baptized in obedience to God's command. Communion and baptism are the two commands that Jesus said to do till he comes. So again, the baptism is just an, out, is, is an outward display of an inward change. Now Paul gives us the last part of the sevenfold unity. One God and Father of all and in you all. Here's the ultimate goal of all the other unities. All of the rest exist, as, as Peter says, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18. He's the goal. God's the target. All these other uh, one baptism, one faith, one God, Lord, they're all to get us and bring us to, to, to the Father. The sign that we've truly found God is that we know Him as Father. We sense Him. 
as a father. We sense his father-like heart. He's a person, and he wants to know us, and he wants us to know him, and he wants us to have a personal relationship with him. Do you? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Is he your father? Can you say, my God, my father, he wants to have, God wants to have a deep, eternal fellowship with you. He wants us to have just as intimate a relationship with him as a child's relationship to an earthly father, but even more than that. Once you truly know the father, the way that he wants you to know him, you learn that the only right way to address him is Father. Abba, Father, as the Bible says. And I remember the time I went to Israel, and it was on the tour bus, and the bus stopped, and people got out and got to stretch their legs, and this little Hebrew boy got, was so excited because he walked, ran up to the front of the bus because the bus driver got out. He's sitting in the seat, and he's got that big old steering wheel, and he's just, you know, he's just having a great old time. And his father happened to be right out in front of the bus where he could see him. And he went, Abba, Abba. It was awesome because right away, he just saw there was a scripture where Abba, the Bible is called Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment, of intimacy, like a child and his father. And he was pointing to him with that love in his heart and going, Abba, Abba. That's how the Heavenly Father wants us to look at him. He's my Abba. He's my Father. Beautiful, a, a beautiful word and, and picture of relationship. No other name conveys the intimate union with God that a Christian experiences like Abba, Father. In these seven basic parts, you find the, 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 the nature of real Christian unity. It's not, a, it's not a union that we're supposed to make by our own works. It's a unity that already exists. It's created in us and through us and around us by the Holy Spirit. These seven characteristics in verses 4, 5, and 6, these seven characteristics of unity aren't to be some kind of a statement of belief or a pledge. That is, if I agree with them, then that makes me a Christian. No, no, no. It's the other way around. If I'm a Christian, then I believe in these. Becoming a Christian even uh, eventually brings agreement on these points. They're not just words of doctrine. They're a shared experience. They're everyday truths that take a hold of us, not truths that we're to take a hold of. These seven characteristics of unity are not debatable. And if anybody challenges or disagrees with them, they're simply showing that they are not yet a Christian. When they do become a Christian, they will experience, and as a result, they'll understand these things. They might not be able to explain them clearly, but they will recognize them when they hear them described. Because you see, they've experienced right away, they've experienced them all right away in Jesus Christ. So the way to create unity is simply to bring men and women to Christ. And that's why we can see this world is so divided. Because they don't know Jesus. The unity of the Spirit will be produced only by the Holy Spirit. So verses 4 through 6, 
make it clear that Christians are to work at keeping peace in the body. That's what Paul taught when he said in in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the word endeavoring in the Greek means to spare no effort. We're to do all that we can to keep that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If somebody wants to argue with me, I don't argue with them. It's very important that Christians practice Christ-like love and they stop quarreling with each other. They stop holding grudges. They stop striving against one another. Jesus said that our love and our unity would be a witness to the world. And he said the world would know us by our love. Do they know us by our love? What do they say of this church? Do they say this church is a loving church? That's on us. That's on us. Jesus prayed for Christians. He says that they may all be one, that the world might believe that you sent me. He prayed, hey guys, you need to all be one so that the world will know that the Father sent me to you. All the division and all the hostility that goes on in the church will hinder the church's effectiveness in the community. Our witness is made ineffective and powerless because we're not willing to keep the unity that the Spirit has already given us. And when we're divided, what kind of witness are we to the world? What can you say to the world? What can I say to the world that would make them want to pay attention to what I'm saying? And what can we say to them that would want to make them walk through these doors? I might, be the, I might be the person that's keeping them from coming to church depending on my, the way I act and talk with them. You see, it's so important that when Christians meet together that we realize, hey, we're not called, um, that, that we are called to understand one another. We are called to understand one another. That's our duty. The scripture tells us, and we'll... we'll We'll see this more and more when we get further into Ephesians. You are to forbear one another. You are to pray for one another. You are to forgive one another. You are to be kind-hearted to one another. You are to be tender-hearted to one another. You're not to hold grudges. You're not to be bitter. You're not to be resentful or hateful toward each other. And this is the aim of the Holy Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit aims when He comes among us. He moves towards healing resentment and restoring relationships. And this is how we keep the unity that the Holy Spirit has given us. We have to go deeper than the shallow Christianity that too many Christians live in and get over the differences so that that, so that, that, that bond of peace that the, the Holy Spirit has rises to the top. And we have to recognize that our relationships are more important than any petty problems that divide us. And that there's no problem too great for God to solve. Jim Cimbala, the author of the book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, great book, been out for a long time. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. He said, I find it curious that we Christians will vigorously defend what Ephesians 4 says about one Lord, And one faith. 
but then we will grow strangely silent when it comes to about one body. At that point, we start making excuses, historical and otherwise, for the shameful divisions within the church. You see, if the grace of God is really at work in your life, transforming your heart, then the wonderful, most important, basic unity that's there will rise above all the differences and hurts, expressing itself through the Holy Spirit through acts of love shown even to the unloving and the unlovable and the unlovely. These verses also teach us that we can't classify Christians by church denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Catholics. Hey, we don't know who they are. We don't know who are believers and who aren't. They're going to be found everywhere in in denominations as well. The Holy Spirit always rises above denominations. The unity of the Spirit will be found in people of many different denominations, and we need to understand that. We will find true Christians everywhere, and it's our responsibility to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace wherever we find believers in Christ. Something else that we learn from these verses is that some areas, in some areas, I can't be united with unbelievers. We can, we can join with anyone. We can join with anyone in, in relieving human suffering or helping with better living conditions. So again, I, I can be united even with unbelievers. Like I said, in, in those areas. Uh, again, we can, we can be joined with unbelievers uh, with anyone, again, in, in relieving uh, human suffering or helping with better living conditions. Now, we're not to shut ourselves out from other human beings just because they don't share the life and faith in Christ that we do. Otherwise, how could, be, how could we be a witness? But there are areas where I can't join with others. And that area is in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, evangelizing. And the reason is that there are a lot of organizations that call themselves Christian, but they have a totally different understanding of the gospel, which is not a gospel at all. And what they're trying to do and what we're trying to do is going in two opposite directions. So that would make us unequally yoked. This is God's way of teaching that there are basic differences between people whose spiritual convictions are very different. Like Amos said in chapter 3, 3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? The inference is no. Now, can I worship with unbelievers? The Bible says yes. God commands that people everywhere worship him. Psalm 66, 1 and 2 says, Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his name and praise glorious. Paul said in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven and earth, uh, 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 and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherever anyone, is worship, wherever anyone is worshiping God as supreme and not something less, not some less idea of him like an idol, then Christians can join together in worship. 
The most simple way for anyone to approach God is declared in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So after saying all of this, don't forget Paul's request to the church to be faithful to its calling back in verse 1 when he said to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So in closing, the church doesn't have the right to do its own thing, to go its own way. The church's purpose and goal has already been established for us and even its function has been, de- has been decided by its Lord. Just like an earthly family, the different members have to give and take in order to keep a loving unity in the home. So God's heavenly family has to do the same thing. And Paul is very concerned. And that's why he wrote this, th- th- these verses about endeavoring to to keep the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's very concerned that Christians don't break the unity of the spirit by agreeing with false doctrine. And the Apostle John gives the same warning. The local church can't believe in peace at any price. No compromise. Because God's wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, James says. All right? God's wisdom is first pure, then peaceable. In other words, purity of doctrine alone does not produce spiritual unity. Purity of doctrine alone does not produce spiritual unity because there are churches, oh, they're sound in the faith, but unsound when it comes to love. And this is why Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, he says, Speak the truth. Do it in love. Speak the truth. Do it in love. Father, once again, we thank you so much for your wonderful word. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your tender mercies, Father. And I pray, Father, that we would not just hear these words, God, but they, we would let them sink deep into our heart like Paul said. Colossians 3.16 to let the word of God dwell in us richly Lord and Father as we prepare to take communion Lord may we examine ourselves as Paul said that we do not take communion in an unworthy manner and if you're holding a grudge or you're bitter against somebody or you're just not having anything to do whatever the reason might be You need to make it right before you come to the table. Father, may you bless Brother Phil as he comes up to lead us in communion. And God, may your spirit move among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Phil.